was another big event this week too, probably bigger than the Pope. Now, if you're not from this country, it probably won't mean as much to you, but Yogi Berra died. He was an American baseball player. He was 90 years old and an all-star for many years. Listen up. <laughs> I've never had anybody tell me that they couldn't hear me before. <laughs> Do this. <laughs> Pardon me? Come up here. <laughs> yeah. Come on. I don't want you to stay back there and aggravate me. Come on up here. <laughs> anyway, in addition to being a, <coughs> a great ball player, he said a lot of things that were totally off the wall that made no sense whatsoever. He, given directions to his house, he told a man how to get there. He says, when you get to a fork in the road, take it. So, you know. <laughs> talked about a, a place, he said, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. <laughs> and then he said, okay, I want you to pair up in threes. So that's what, so I want you, what I want you to do this morning when Bill says, you know, pair up, that means three. <laughs> About Jeremiah, though, the reason that it's so hard for us to believe what God says is because, I think, first of all, we don't know his word. Because to know his word is to see how powerful it is and how it never fails. And none of us know it well enough, I don't think, to get to that point where doubt doesn't flood our minds sometimes. <coughs> but if, if you read, for example, there's just one scripture that jumped out at me this week in the 119th Psalm it says I have inherited your testimonies forever for they are the joy of my heart imagine scriptures being the joy of your heart imagine them delighting you all the days and, and the word says that the, the commandments of God are not burdensome that means they're not hard why are they hard? They're hard to us because we don't want to do them. Because our sin nature wants to do something else. That's why they're burdensome. That's why they're difficult. But if our heart was pure, they wouldn't be burdensome, would they? They wouldn't be hard. We would be delighted because they delight God who made us to begin with. And he made us in his image without sin to begin with. And that's part of the restoration pro uh, process for people that are born again. God is restoring what was lost. 
Now, it's not an immediate total restoration, but it's a progression. I want to get back into to 1 John in a minute. It always takes time to get there, you know. It's not an immediate thing. Billy Graham, and I assume most people know who he is, he tells about a crisis in his life concerning the Bible. And he says, early in my life, I had some doubts concerning the Word, the Word of God. But one night in 1949, imagine that, in 1949, I knelt before a stump in the woods near Forest Home, California. I opened my Bible and I said, Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand but I accept it by faith as your infallible word from Genesis to Revelation. And he said, I settled that, and from that moment on, I have never had a single doubt that this is God's word. So when I quote the Bible, when I preach it, I know that I am preaching the truth of God. You know, an important scripture that a lot of people have memorized. It comes out of 2 Timothy 3.16. And that particular passage says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for teaching, for, peru- for re- reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture is given by God. And this phrase is inspired by God. It's just one word in the Greek. And the phrase means, the one word in Greek means God breathed. All scripture, everything here is God breathed. It's the word of God coming out of his mouth. They have their origin with God, not with man. And that's consistent with many Old Testament passages that say things like, God spoke these words, or the Lord speaks, or thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me saying, God spoke and it was a perfect word. That's the idea in the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3.16 where he talks about all scripture being inspired of God. God spoke, and the scriptures were formed. The next verse, 2 Timothy 3.17, tells us the purpose for the God-breathed Bible, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is inspired of God, and is given so that the people of God will be equipped for every good work. Now why in the world would we take the unpopular, almost always, position these days to be criticized by people 
when we tell them that the Bible is without error. There are no mistakes in the Bible. How can we say that? First of all, we can say it because that's what the Bible claims for itself. It claims to be without mistake, without error, in any of the things that it talks about. It doesn't say that it's talking about the latest vaccination, but whatever it addresses, it claims to be without error. If the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but contains errors, how can we believe it when it says and claims anything? And if it can't be trusted with every word, who decides which words are trustworthy and which words are not? Where's the dividing line? If scripture's not totally reliable, what does that say about the character of God? Everything falls apart. It's either totally reliable or you need to just throw it out the window. You pick what you want, forget the rest. But everybody's going to pick a different part. So it's really worthless. It's either all correct all the time or it's just nice saying that you can adapt if you want to and if you don't, don't worry about it. It's not a coincidence that in the same chapter we've been talking about, 2 Timothy, where it talks about all scripture being given by God. It's not a coincidence in that same chapter that Paul talks about the inspiration of scripture, that he begins that chapter with a warning about the last days. He says that men were going to be arrogant, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, and without self-control. And then he tells you all scripture is inspired. He says they're going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That they have the appearance of being godly, but they deny the power of God, which means it's a false appearance. It's an outward thing and not an inward thing. That's what makes false teachers so dangerous. They appear to be Christians, but they go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So how do we protect ourselves from these people? Paul says we are to continue in the sacred writings and scripture, which are able to give us wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. If scripture is not absolutely true, then we're going to be deceived and we'll fall into error. We'll never outmarket false teachers. We'll never have a better PR program than false teachers. Why? Because they're telling people what they want to hear. They're telling people what tickles the flesh what appeals to their sinful nature, what they want to do. If I tell you something evil is good, and that's what you want to do anyway, then you're going to listen to those people and not people that tell you what God says when God says stay away from it. So we're never going to outmarket false prophets. 
because the product they're trying to sell appeals to the flesh. It calls for us to please ourselves and not please God. But Paul tells us to be encouraged, to keep the faith, to fight the good fight, to finish the race. For those that do, it says God is going to give the crown of righteousness, an eternal crown of righteousness to those that persevere, to those that have faith, to those that believe. We read and we study scripture because it transforms us. It makes us more like Jesus. We store it in our hearts because it protects us from false teaching. How are you going to be protected from false teaching if you don't know what true teaching is? It'll never happen. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, fourth chapter, it tells us that we shall not add to the word of God nor take away from it. In the New Testament, if you go to the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. It tells you, you better leave scripture alone. You better not alter it and change it to suit yourself. If we know what the truth is, we will know these false teachers because they are always distorting the word of God. They're always changing it just a little bit. You don't have to change it a lot. You'll start off here and change it a little and before you finish, you're way over here. And this is what happens if you don't know what the truth is. All scripture is a revelation. No one would know the truth about God or be able to relate to him in any way, in any personal way, if God had not first acted to make himself known. You're not going to know God unless God first reveals himself to you because we're blind spiritually. We can't see, we can't understand. The things of God are foolishness to man. What scripture says, God says. The Bible says God is jealous. Now, that sounds pretty bad, because we know what jealousy is in us, and it's not a good thing. But jealousy in us comes from a heart that's full of envy, a heart that wants what other people have. But jealousy in God is not that way. Jealousy in God is a zeal, which a zeal is a, a really strong desire for something. God's jealousy, his zeal, is for his word. It's for people to know the truth, to know his character. He's jealous, he's zealous for us to know his character because he's perfect. And everything that he says is for our good. And he knows that if we deviate from his good, the end result is going to be disastrous. It's going to impact our lives in a terrible way. So he's jealous for his word. He's jealous for his name. He's jealous for his character. 
because as we know these things and we embrace it, then it changes us for good. And as we turn away from it, it just chops us into pieces. In the same way that God is jealous for his name and his character, we're supposed to be jealous for his name, for his people, and his word, just like he is. And we can't be zealous for the word of God if we don't know the word of God. It all comes back to we have to have a heart, a passion to know the word of God. We have to be praying, God, open my eyes that I might see this and understand it. The things that I don't understand, help me to understand. <clears throat> and even if I don't understand it, and I think something different, then obviously I'm the one that's wrong, not you, because you're perfect, you never make a mistake. In 1 John, third chapter, a couple of verses we read a few weeks ago, Love is declared to be a test whereby you can determine whether a person is saved or not. John says that if you see your brother's continuous need, not just a one-time need, you have to understand that everything in 1 John, if you add the word continuous to it, you'll probably be better off. It doesn't say that if you sin one time, you're not a Christian. But it says that if you abide in sin, if you keep doing it over and over, if it characterizes your life, John says you're a liar if you say you're a Christian because you're not. And in the same way, he says if we see our brother in a continuous need, if you see repeated evidence of his need, and then you slam shut the door of your heart, of your compassion, he says, how does the love of God abide in you? How do you think God's love abides in you? If you see a brother's continuous need and you go, eh, it means your heart's not like God's heart is what it means. And if this is characterizes your life, if this is the way you live, then you can call yourself whatever you want to, but don't call yourself a Christian because you're not. Genuine love gives to those in need. It's more than just words. It's not just speech. We are to love in deed and in truth. It's a matter of action. Otherwise, it's really not love at all. Now, we're actually going to read 1 John. Continue. In the third chapter, beginning in the 19th, in the 19th verse, Actually, 19 through 24. <clears throat> and I do with this because I want us to understand how important Scripture is. It's not just, you know, I, I read this chapter. I'm through with that chore for today or this week or whatever. It needs to penetrate us because it's God revealing his nature. It's God revealing what's our life is supposed to, to be like is essential 
for our character to be like his character. Verse 19 says, We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, our heart does not con- if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. John says that when our acts reveal true love, then we're going to know we're of the truth. And then he says, however, your heart can condemn you sometimes even when you're doing the right thing. Now, how can he say that? Because our hearts Jeremiah says our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know them? So our hearts don't always tell us the right thing. Sometimes we do the right thing and our heart says, you should have done more. Why did you wait so long? You just, you just gave because you want to get rid of that person and get him out of your life. And so your heart condemns you because you can always do more. You could have always done better. Maybe your, maybe your attitude was not what it was supposed to be. And when feelings of self-condemnation attack us, we can calm our heart. We can persuade our heart by considering the evidence of genuine sacrificial love. And that sacrificial love shares with those that are in need. God, it says God is greater than our heart, and he never misjudges. He always judges rightly and fairly. So God is greater than our heart. Our heart can deceive us. God will not. Obviously, we know we don't earn salvation, but our salvation shows itself through the presence of the love of God in our lives. The words that he says, if our heart does not condemn us, that doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it represents a person that's living in close fellowship with the Lord. He has confidence in prayer, not only to accept, not only that he has access to God, but that he receives an answer from God. And the verb here, just like everything in John, reflects a continuous action. You're always praying. You always are asking. You're always receiving. You never stop. It's not a one-time thing. Whatever we ask means our our desires are supposed to be aligned with God's desires. 
you can't ask something that's for your selfish, that appeals to your selfish, na selfish nature and think that God is supposed to answer you because he won't. Or he may answer, he may say no. He may say, what in the world are you asking me? We're supposed to pray according to God's character. If we go to verse, excuse me, chapter 4, the first three verses. And we're actually going to go through about a third, two-thirds of this chapter. And it's going to be a quick study. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. And now <coughs> it is already in the world. The background of the people that John is writing to is a, it's a situation where supernatural phenomena such as speaking in tongues and prophecy was prevalent. It was going on all the time. And some people were so impressed with these things that they were dazzled them. Believe not every spirit is in the present tense, and it indicates that those that were writing to John were willing to unconditionally, uncritically accept everything that they heard without testing it. Just if it sounds spiritual, it's got to be true. And what John is saying is that God has given us his spirit, but there are other spirits in the world too. In chapter 3, John said that we must believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now he tells us, don't believe every spirit. Christians are not to blindly believe every claim that people make just because they say they're Christian, just because they say, God told me this. Now he tells us, don't believe every spirit. True faith examines words and claims before they believe. So John says to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Prophets, by the very definition, are the mouthpiece <coughs> of some spirit. True prophets are the mouthpiece of the spirit of God. And false prophets are the mouthpiece of the spirit of error, the spirit of Antichrist. So some spirit is behind every prophet, and we have to discern which spirit it is. <coughs> behind every spirit, or behind every prophet's a spirit, and behind every spirit is either God or the devil. 
before we can trust them, we have to test them. Whether they are from God is what John says. It's the origin that makes the difference, where they came from. Jesus warned his disciples about false prophets. Paul warned the people about false prophets. Peter warned the people about false prophets. It must be important. There's a biblical balance between a superstitious belief in everything and an extreme suspicion that doesn't believe anything. And we have to walk in the middle. We can't automatically throw everything out and say, I don't believe anything. And we can't believe everything that we hear. The test is that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Just knowing who Jesus is is not confessing him. Evil spirits did that in the New Testament. They knew who Jesus was, but they didn't confess him. They said, get away from him, or you come to torment us before the time. The Spirit of God always honors the Son of God. The confession is that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the incarnate Christ, Christ in the flesh, Jesus in the flesh, God in the flesh, God's Son. And that's the doctrine that the Gnostics, some of the main people that John is writing against, that they would not accept. They would not ever say Jesus has come in the flesh or God has come in the flesh. They said, and I've mentioned it before, they said the Christ Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism and left Jesus at the cross. So God came on the man, left the man, but he was just a man, except for that period of time where the Christ Spirit came on him. The truth, of course, is that Christ actually came in the flesh and he has never, ever laid his flesh aside. Got that? The foundation of Christian doctrine, which cannot be compromised, is the eternal divine, excuse me, divine human nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Bible says that there's a man in heaven, the man Jesus Christ, divine human. He never laid his humanity aside. <clears throat> Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. If you deny this, it reveals the work of the spirit of Antichrist. The same test can be applied to people today. And you've got people that are offshoots of Gnosticism today. Unity school of so-called Christianity, Christian science. These are Gnostic-derived cults. If Jesus was not both God and man, he could not be our Savior. And in order to die in our place, he had to be a man. <clears throat> and in order for his death to have infinite value, he had to be God. 
verses 4 through 6. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You are of God, meaning you who have confessed Jesus is coming in the flesh. It means you've overcome, because you have confessed Jesus, you've overcome these false prophets. Your victory is because the spirit of truth in you is greater than the spirit of error in these false prophets. It's not that the people that John was writing to were more skillful or more learned than the false prophets, than the false teachers. They were able to overcome them because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the same thing is true today. It has not changed. In contrast to the we, the we being the true people of God, or the they, and the they are the false teachers. Their message came from the world. And the world means the secular, anti-Christian orientation that occupies all those that are not Christians. And so obviously the world is going to listen to the people that say the things, to say the same things that appeal to their nature. Those that know God listen to those that speak the word of God rightly. They recognize the gospel through the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. Okay? That spirit of truth within a person who belongs to Jesus witnesses to the truth and, and just sets off alarm bells at false teaching. But it only sets off alarm bells if you know what Scripture says. Scripture and the Holy Spirit work together to guide us and lead us into all truth. So there are two tests for distinguishing the false prophets from the true in this section. There are actually more tests than that in the Bible. But in First John, there are two tests. One is the content of the message. Do they confess Jesus as God's Son come in the flesh? And the other test is the nature of their followers. Who listens to them? The people of God or the people of the world? So look at who follows these people. You could, that's a true test. I'm looking at my watch and um, thinking maybe I'd better stop rather than go on another 10 or 15 minutes. So let's just consider these things. Consider how vital Scripture is. And if we don't have a desire in our heart to know the Word, 
and to have it dwell in us in a way that um, we just feel un, un if we feel like things are just out of kilter because we don't read it enough then ask God to change our heart so that we have a desire for it because believe me I can see easily in my own life the less time I spend reading the Bible the more time I feel attracted to the things of the world and the more time I do spend in it the more I see that the things of the world have no attraction for me and that's the way it works you have to feed what's inside of you and if you're feeding the, the, the if you're feeding the Word of God and it's united with the Spirit of God within you then there's a, a hatred for the things that God hates and a love for the things that God loves and if we're not there then we ask we need to ask God to put us in that place so that we are there let's pray Lord there are a lot of tests for that John puts out for, for being a Christian true love continuous love for the brothers for those that are in Christ is one of his big tests confessing Jesus Christ as the son of God come in the flesh <coughs> is, is the big test because if anybody says that with their mouth yet doesn't believe it in their heart then, then they're not true Lord they're false they're from the spirit of antichrist not the spirit of God Lord help us to to always test things that we hear to test them by scripture help us to know scripture so that we can test them by your word and if it agrees with your word then we know we're on safe ground we know that it's true and if it doesn't Lord help us to run help us to run from it because it's worse than a, a flaming forest fire that will devour everything in its path Lord help us to love your word we just bow before you in thanksgiving for who you are that you're the created and you're the create you're the creator and you're the creator Lord help us to know that truly in our hearts in Jesus name Amen. Amen.